Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Stiverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who has been dealing with drug addiction, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. If you'd like to support Safe Home Podcast so we can maintain a commercial-free listening experience, please visit patreon.com slash safehome. I also want to let you know that you can find all our episodes on YouTube, Spotify, and all the podcast apps. You can find all those links in the episode description or just search for Safe Home Podcast in your favorite platform. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Now today in this episode, we will be diving into the complicated subject of learning disabilities. Our guest, Jill Stoll, will give us some practical advice so we can help our kids succeed in school and in life. Jill Stoll is the founder and executive director of Stoll Learning Centers, where she and her team have helped thousands of children and adults permanently correct their learning or attention challenges. Jill is a two-time best-selling author and speaker who is passionate about helping parents and educators understand their struggling students and the possibilities for real change. Thank you so much for being here to help us, Jill. Thank you, Beth. I'm really excited to be here. This is a great resource for parents. Yeah, that's what we really have a heart to help other parents of adolescents and uh, other family members and teachers because our kids are struggling. Oh, man, it's a tough time to be growing up right now. So whatever we can do to help other families, that's what we're all in for. So, well, first, I want to dig in about learning disabilities. How did you get into that subject matter in your career? Did you start when you were going through training as a teacher? Did you get interested in it? Or is there a personal connection to learning disabilities? I don't actually have a personal connection to learning disabilities, but I started getting interested in working with special education when I was in ninth grade, actually. And by the time I was in college, I got the opportunity to work in classrooms with learning disabilities. And, and I just fell in love with that population of students, Mm -hmm. dyslexia, learning and attention challenges, and, you know, just knew that that's where I wanted to go. These are bright, creative, talented, fun, (laughs) really Mm -hmm. cool kids that Mm -hmm. have some specific difficulties in school that are really hard for people to understand because mm-hmm. they're so typical in every other way. And so ah. these kids are misunderstood and really underserved. Yeah. It seems like our education system is kind of cookie cutter. You know, the kids that are a little bit out of the normal way of behaving or learning kind of get the the short end of the stick, right? And um, I'm sure that's where you come in to help other families. But um, does it seem like there's a deficit in our education system in general for these kids that have learning disabilities? There are programs for kids with learning disabilities in the schools. But the real challenge is that when kids are struggling, whether they're, you know, there are a lot of kids that aren't diagnosed with learning disabilities, Mm. but they still have some underlying issues that are getting in the way of them being able to work as efficiently and comfortably in school as they could. So so you've got kids who are very smart 
and they're struggling. And the first thing that a teacher is going to see in the classroom generally is attention issues. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't do the work or you can't, or it's really difficult, eventually you just sort of wear out and you do other things or your mind drifts, you know. So it looks like behavior problems. It looks like behavior and attention problems. So many parents, you know, the first thing they hear is, you might want to check and see if your child needs medication. And and it's because the symptom that the teacher is seeing is attention, but mm. it's not really the issue. You know, I, I never had my son on an IEP or um, 504. I never had him diagnosed with anything, but I am sure he had something. But he was, he made it through, kind of thank God for recess and baseball. It kind of let him (laughs) survive through school. He's like, okay, I got to get through this day so I can get to baseball practice, right? But I'm pretty sure he had something going on. And then um, maybe someday he can work on figuring out if he has ADHD or I don't think he has dyslexia, but I'm pretty sure there's some sort of executive function kind of issue uh, with him. And I'm pretty sure, and I think... From what I've read about your work, it probably has to do with his prenatal or really early childhood experiences as an adopted child. Do you find a lot of adopted people in your uh, clientele? We actually do Mm -hmm. have quite a few adopted children. Um, In our dyslexic population, dyslexia is generally hereditary, so we also have families that have a number of people, uh, you know, that, that have the same issues, but we do have a lot of adopted children. And you said that you think that his issues maybe go all the way back to the early, early development. And that really is true. Mm -hmm. Um, there are skills that, that develop as babies, you know, when they're born and then in those very early months Mm -hmm. uh, that start to integrate primitive reflexes and start to develop that mental and physical organization. And, and so early environments Mm -hmm. can, can really impact. And of course, adopted children, we are learning from some of our colleagues, even if they're adopted at birth, there are still some issues for them in in terms of understanding their story and where they fit in the world. So it's it's a complicated, complicated yes. issue. Yes, I I am of the belief that even if you get adopted right on the first day of the child's being born, even if they're adopted right at the hospital, there's trauma there. Mm-hmm. Even if they're even if their adoptive family is fabulous. Like right. we tried to be, you know, there's trauma. You can't just take someone away from their birth mother and then expect it to be just fine. So there's going to be something. And and then a lot of times mothers who are, are carrying a child that they are not going to keep or is causing all sorts of distress at home or whatever, that mother is not going to be giving the calm, secure attachment that that child needs prenatally or right after that. And, and, that all will affect their learning. Is that what you're saying? I think it affects their perception of themselves, which, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we are whole beings. We're not, 
you know, compartmentalized mm-hmm. 100%. So, so all of those things can impact. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned something about reflexes. Primitive reflexes. Can you explain what that is? So babies are born with reflexes that actually start to develop in utero. I mean, these are, these are movements that are automatic. They're, mm-hmm. they're brainstem level. They're not thinking movements. Mm-hmm. And, and they help babies in the birthing process and then help them start to develop and move in their first months of life. So that mm-hmm. visual skills start developing with these oh. primitive reflexes, motor skills, and there are just some really foundational things that mm-hmm. impact reading and learning later on that start way, way back with that early, early movement. But those reflexes aren't needed. Most of them mature into higher level reflexes or they kind of integrate or disappear because they're not needed after the baby is, you know, nine or 12 months of age. But if they continue to fire when they're not needed or they're not working properly, then it's like little neurological glitches Mm -hmm. or roadblocks that kids find ways to get around, but it just means things are going to be harder and take longer. Yeah. And they probably have no idea they're doing it because all you know is your own experience. So they don't realize that it could be easier in somebody else's brain. There's no way to know that. Right. Right. So it, it, it shows up in visual issues, concentration, kind of focus kind of things. A lot of times it does. It might show up in a wiggly body. You know, there are some spinal reflexes that are really important in mm-hmm. in developing auditory processing in utero and then in in birth. But if those continue to fire, then you get kids who they might be really wiggly, like they have ants in their pants, you know, or they don't want to wear tight clothing mm-hmm. because when you stimulate, you know, the sides of their spine, they wiggle. So now you get a child that that's got this constant movement that's interfering with their working memory and yeah. with paying attention. And then if you if they're told, sit still, sit still, sit still, mm-hmm. then they'll tighten up their body, maybe, you know, because they're trying to comply. Yeah. But now all their energy is going into not moving. Oh. <laughs> and so, yes. again, oh my learning gosh. can be affected and get become spotty. Joey was totally like that. He's always a wiggle worm and I'm sure he drove his teachers crazy. Uh, Luckily, we had some teachers that were fine with him to be able to get up to walk around if he needed to. But then some teachers were more the old fashioned way, stricter, sit still, control your body, that kind of thing. And he's just like, nope. Not gonna happen. <laughs> you said you said that he just couldn't wait for recess. Well, yes. our kids with learning challenges, all kids really, but they need recess. They need to be able to move. It helps them yes. kind of get it back together. Um, yes. Just the movement itself is. Oh, he was so is so physical. He just lives in the world very physically in his body, and I'm the opposite. I'm like you could cut me off at the neck. I don't need the rest of it. I'm totally in my mind. But he is very bodily engaged. I don't know how to describe that. But I would get so angry at teachers who would take away his recess when he got in trouble. So he was wiggly in class. 
So what do they do? Take away his recess? Like, oh, no, that's what he needs. My goodness. He's asking for movement and right. you're going to take that away from him. That made me so mad. <sighs> I struggled with that his whole elementary school. And it takes, you know, it, it takes educating the teachers and that's really hard. I mean, yeah. as, as soon as, as soon as someone does something to our kid or says something and, and we as parents get so defensive and it's, it's just so hard, you know, yeah. and, and um, I think when parents know, when you know that your child has this need to move or has you know, the need to be in the front of the class because mm-hmm. they can't get the information auditorily unless they're really close or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that we need to understand as parents is teachers, they don't really know. They're not really taught that. And a lot of times, especially your elementary teachers, they're willing. They're yeah. willing to help. Mm-hmm. They want to help, but they they don't really know. And so setting them up, going in and saying, here's, here's my kid, you're going to see this in class. And it's not bad. It's, it's not really in his control. Please, please, please never take recess away. It will make the rest of your day harder. Yeah. It's in your best interest, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It just will get worse if you keep making this kid sit still. Oh, goodness. I, I always felt like, Well, I wasn't very brave when I was a young mom. So if I were to do it all over again, I would do it way differently. But I always felt like, God, she's going to think I'm just uh, coddling him or, uh, you know, my child isn't the bad one. He's got this or that going on. How, How can a parent go into an educational environment and ask for what their kid needs without sounding like you're giving excuses or my kid is extra special and needs this extra thing? How do how do parents mitigate that? You know, I think the first thing is to go in and validate the teacher. So Mm. tell the teacher something that their child really likes about them or something that you appreciate about them. If there's nothing that you feel really great about, you might you might just validate, hey, I know that it is really hard to have a kid in a group of 30 who can't sit still. And, oh, yeah. and I am so sorry about that. I get it. Um, <laughs> let me tell you about my child and and some of the reasons for that. Because mm-hmm. once people understand the reason, it's helpful. That, that's good advice. You know, we have a student right now who's a teenager and she has auditory processing disorder and, and it impacted her tremendously. She was diagnosed when she was eight. And from that point on, her mom kind of taught her how to talk to her teachers about it. Oh. And and so when she was really young, she and her mom would go in at the beginning of the school year and together, mostly mom, but a little bit her, educate the teacher about auditory processing disorder and what mm-hmm. she needed so that now that she's in high school, she's able to talk to her teachers Sometimes they're receptive and sometimes they aren't, but she Mm -hmm. has learned how to to advocate for herself. Oh, that's excellent because even if it doesn't work out perfectly, that gives the child the power 
to deal with whatever they need and that they'll need the rest of their lives. Right. Right. That's excellent. And then if she runs into trouble, if a teacher's not helping, then you go ask mom to help her (laughs) or dad, or you got, you go up the ladder, but that's, that's very good to give the the students the the power to help them themselves if they can. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. And to understand themselves. You know, I think when, whatever challenges a student is dealing with, you know, we deal a lot with dyslexia and different kinds of learning disabilities and, and, and attention challenges and auditory challenges. Well, as soon as the child begins to understand their own learning, the big mm-hmm. picture of who they are, the things that are hard, the things that they're really strong at because of their thinking style, it just empowers them to, to move forward and, and manage the, the stigmas and misconceptions that come along. That's great. That's great. So instead of the teachers and the parents kind of huddling over here, you get the student really involved in their own understanding of what's going on. That's very, that's very, very smart. That's great. Now in your, in your bio, I read that you can permanently change some of these learning disabilities. That sounds, I hardly can believe that. How how can that be? (laughs) It seems like if you have dyslexia, you just have it, but you're saying that you can fix it. You know, that is a really common belief. Mm -hmm. But the brain research and and the clinical evidence has been out there for decades. The brain can develop new neural pathways Mm -hmm. uh, with intensive and targeted training. I mean, our brain is amazing. Yes. And, And it can do that with the right, you know, kind of training and being very targeted. And and what we've learned is that uh, under reading, writing, spelling, math, there are all kinds of other skills that aren't taught in school. Mm-hmm. They're just assumed are in place when you go to school. So attention, memory, auditory processing, visual processing, language processing, processing speed, uh, reasoning, and It's assumed when a child goes to school that that's in place for their age level and then grows as they do. But for about 30% of the population, there are some skills that are not completely developed. And so if we want to make changes, we've got to go after the root of the problem. And that's where it is. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, you might have difficulty reading because you're not processing the sounds or visually things kind of feel like they're moving around on the page, well, then we have to get underneath that into the auditory and visual processing and develop those foundational skills. Then you can remediate the reading. I love that because you're not just treating the symptom. Right. You're going all the way back to the cause. And from that list you gave, it seems like a lot of those might possibly be from having trauma or chaos in the house or neglect. Uh, Do you find those kinds of things have occurred a a lot of the times when you have students with those kind of deficits? Definitely, yes. But it's not just that. I mean, a lot of these things, issues can be hereditary. So there's some genetic component. Uh Mm -hmm. I remember we had a child who 
He had a wonderful family. He had all kinds of opportunities. They were, you know, very intentional. But at birth, he he had to have several surgeries. So this little guy was pretty much immobile for nine mm. months. Oh, boy. Well, that meant that all those reflexes and all of that early organization that happens through movement, mm. that foundation didn't get laid down. And so by the time we got him, he was nine and he had a lot of learning challenges. Well, the root of that went mm. back to to what happened when he was an infant. Interesting. So there are lots of different reasons and we can't always pinpoint them. Yeah, I suppose a lot of the time it's vague. You don't know exactly what it is, but the problem is not the dyslexia or the whatever. The problem is deeper than that. That's what you're saying. Right. It, it right. goes to a deeper issue. So that child that was immobilized when they were a baby, how did you go about helping that child? What What can you do for someone like that? We did what we call core learning skills training, which is mostly physical movements and exercises to first integrate the retained reflexes. So he had these primitive reflexes that were still firing and getting in the way. So so integrating the reflexes and then building the skills to really use their body to cross the midline to build their visual skills. And so we did core learning skills training and paired that with auditory training because auditory, visual, and motor are just really key skills that start developing well in utero, really. And Mm -hmm. so those are our core level skills that we need to get those working and and working together. Wow. I would never have thought of a learning disabilities center moving around. (laughs) (laughs) I, I picture you sitting at a desk or sitting at a table and doing a lot of talking and reading and listening, but you're saying the body needs to be involved. That's, that's pretty cool. Cause I'm also look, looking at embodiment in other areas I've been talking about with other guests and trauma, for instance, I've been studying trauma so much, but trauma lives in the body, not in the mind. You know, so many things are in our body, but we've become so disconnected in our culture. But I love that you're doing the crossing the midline kind of exercises, which means, um, can you describe that for, for people? Well, the midline of the body, the vertical midline is really important for reading and writing. I mean, your eyes have to go across your midline. Mm -hmm. Your hand has to go across the page, which crosses the midline. And if you have difficulty crossing the midline of your body, which is one of those things that, that starts to develop very early, it develops as you pick a dominant hand. Mm -hmm. And so if there's difficulty crossing the midline, you may see a child who turns their paper all the way sideways so they never have to cross the midline or they'll start to write and then their writing will kind of slant down the page or they'll be reading okay and then they just start making a lot of mistakes when they hit that midline. So so we do exercises that are crossing the midline from one side of the body to the other and and a lot of repatterning. So large motor skills? Well, yes, starting with large motor, because you really have to, you have to internalize that on your body. Mm -hmm. So something as simple as cross crawls, crossing your one hand over to your opposite knee and and just sort of almost marching like that. 
uh-huh, standing uh-huh. in place, doing cross crawls. It's a very, very integrating exercise. Uh-huh. It's simple to do. Uh-huh. It's a great thing to do before school, before homework, when your uh-huh. child is getting antsy during homework. And it's great for any age. Does it calm people down to do that crossing the midline exercises? It It is calming. Huh. It regulates you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. As soon as we start to gain control and ease in our body, then we start to gain control and ease. Yeah, I suppose. Period. Right. Yes. So it makes you feel like, okay, I'm organized here. And then you'll be more apt to be able to listen to the teacher or to pay attention to what you're reading or whatever. It kind of settles everything down. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And it's not a cognitive thing. You know, it's just a child will just, they'll just feel better and more ready. (laughs) And they don't need to know why really, but um, they won't understand why, but just uh, doing those simple, simple things kind of just helps get them centered again. That's great. That seems so easy that parents could easily do that, right? Easily. What are some other little things that parents can do, you know, while they're waiting around or in the car? Are there things that they can just do little things all day long or? They can't. Anything, anything that requires you to cross to the opposite side of the body is helpful. Mm -hmm. So with, with young children, you know, just reaching for something that's across their midline, you know, playing cards where they have to reach over across their body to get it. Uh-huh. So if a parent was aware of this, they could easily make a child reach for the, the salt or whatever, um, their dinner over here instead of where it's more convenient over here. And they could just integrate that in everything you do. Right. That, right. And at what age would you start that? As children start to develop handedness, so little little children sitting on the floor And you'll see kids just kind of using both hands. But gradually, you know, even as little toddlers, they start to use one hand more than the other. Mm -hmm. And so then you kind of want to encourage that, you know, put something where they have to reach across and get it. Because Mm -hmm. then the brain gets lots and lots of practice with that hand becoming dominant, whichever hand it is. We're not Mm -hmm. picking the hand for the student, but just and and with reaching reaching across. Okay. Interesting. What other kinds of advice would you give parents that are having kids that are struggling in school? This really is for any age, but I know you really talk a lot about teenagers. And Mm -hmm. Is it too late by then? No, it absolutely is not. We work with adults as well. The brain is, the brain is truly amazing. I would say to you that if you find yourself thinking wondering, is he just lazy? You know, is she not motivated? She really, she's just not a school person. If, if you're starting to think things like that, mm-hmm. rethink that because mm-hmm. there is a reason for that. Kids do not want to fail. It is very embarrassing to fail. It, mm-hmm. it is actually quite traumatizing to have a learning disability because these kids are smart. They know when they Mm -hmm. sit in class that it is harder for them. They get singled out more. They don't get as good grades or maybe they get good grades, but they worked five times harder than their friends. Mm -hmm. And they know. Mm -hmm. And especially as teenagers, they're really trying to hide it so that no one else knows. 
And that is really difficult. You go to school every day afraid that you're going to get called on and you're going to get embarrassed. So, so I think, you know, the first thing for parents is when they see some of these things that look like irresponsibility or, you know, lack of motivation to start to think deeper, what else could that be? Mm, Excellent advice. Yeah, I think the students that have these issues, half of their mental energy is kept up with trying to mask whatever it is and trying to just get through under the radar, don't let anyone notice. And that must be just exhausting. Absolutely. For a student. Yeah. How do we expect them to to learn when they're just trying to not get beat up <laughs> right. or not get embarrassed by the teacher? What is your center? What do you do that a regular parent wouldn't be able to do? What what kind of resources are out there for parents to find? So at our center, we specialize in working with children and adults with different kinds of learning and attention challenges. I opened the Center for Dyslexia and Learning Disabilities. So that okay. is really our core. But because we work with the underlying skills that support all brains in learning, mm-hmm. our population is much broader than, than just dyslexia and learning disabilities. So what we do is we start with an assessment and it's a functional assessment. We're not trying to diagnose anything. We do diagnose dyslexia, but the purpose isn't diagnosis. It's not uh, to qualify you. It's to find out why this otherwise bright, capable person is Mm -hmm. struggling Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. So we look at the academic skills, but we also look at the underlying processing and learning and neurodevelopmental skills so that we can see where is the breakdown. And it's different for different students, even if they have the same diagnosis. So so we look at what is going on for each individual student. Then we put together a plan to develop those underlying supporting foundational skills and then remediate what are whatever needs to be remediated in terms of reading, writing, spelling, math, language. Okay. Well, that sounds all good. And is this all done on Zoom nowadays with COVID or do they go into your center? How much of it can be done online? We have four centers in Southern California, and we are open. So students do come in. We use all the COVID precautions, Mm -hmm. which isn't our favorite, but we're very diligent about it. But we also do work with students all over the world remotely. So there is a tremendous amount that can be done online. And Mm -hmm. the lockdown taught us that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so so I think that that will always be a way that we can deliver service. Mm-hmm. Working with students in the center allows us to see even more of just the incidental pieces that we want to want to work on. Yeah, I know from trying to teach music online, you just don't get all the details or you can't see their whole body, you can't see their posture, or, you know, there's so many things, little details you take for granted when you're in person. Right. But it's really great that you can offer your services to people around the world. I mean, people in some rural place that couldn't get to a big city, you know, 
goodness, what a great right. thing that is. So it's it's better than nothing and it's almost as good as in real life, right? Right. It's pretty close. Right. It's pretty close. Truly. <laughs> we have families who we have never met in person who have done incredibly well. You know, it takes a little more parent involvement and mm, yeah. it is easier when we are working with the child and doing all of the monitoring, but, but it absolutely can be done. And, and at pretty much any age. And it sounds like that the techniques you're using are different than what would be used at school with the learning disability specialist or whatever they have at schools. Is it quite a bit different or is it just expanded or? It is quite a bit different. It okay. is very different. It is one-to-one. And in schools, I, I was a special education teacher mm-hmm. and I was a really good, caring teacher. But my first job was to help make sure that my students could function in their regular class. Okay. And so in their regular curriculum, mm-hmm. they still had those standards that they had to meet. And, mm. and so in special education, in traditional tutoring, you're getting a lot of support. Okay. But it's not really aimed at correcting the issue. Aha. Uh-huh. It's it's aimed at helping you get through and be more comfortable. Yeah, they don't have time to to fix everybody's core issues. <laughs> I can imagine that well, maybe in some dreamland educational system, but not in what we've got going on right now in the public schools, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, I'm sure they're they're doing their best that they can. They're overburdened, and especially now with COVID, trying to teach online. Oh, right. Blah, blah, blah. right. Lots of grace given all directions that way. But but it sounds like what you're doing is just so much more holistic, finding that core issue, which is so important in anything you're trying to solve. Absolutely. Instead of just putting Band-Aids on, yes. limping along, <laughs> trying to keep caught up, you know, to figure out what is, what is behind all that. Right. Now... I know it will be hard for you to answer this question, but do you think that sometimes these learning disabilities issues, these differences in learning could contribute to the life that my son is living right now with where he got into substances and he got anxiety and depression and that when the kids kind of fall off the rails, do you think that I'm not, I'm not blaming myself, but I'm looking back going, ha, gosh, if I could have helped him with some of those little issues we were noticing, maybe he wouldn't have felt so different and so stressed out. And do you think there's any connection with that? I, I think there is. And I, I first want to say to parents, you know, you are doing the best that you can. And when you have a child that struggles, I mean, just having a child <laughs> is, is a whole new ball game. It's amazing. And it's challenging mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. And then when you add adoption or trauma or attention challenges or learning challenges, it adds a whole other layer Mm -hmm. to that. And yes, our prisons are full of Uh, people who are smart and who had struggles in school, learning difficulties and, and, uh, they couldn't succeed, so they started to do something where they could. Right. Sometimes kids do go towards substance abuse, go, you know, get involved in activities or with other kids that 
that are not a good influence on them because that's where they can feel accepted or they can feel better. You know, they're kind of Mm self-medicating because, and and you said you've been studying trauma. Mm -hmm. Well, having a learning disability is, is a chronic trauma. Yes. And, and our kids are so good at covering it. Mm -hmm. Your son played baseball. And so he probably felt really good at baseball, but, but every single day that he had to go to school was, there was something inside that was pretty tough. Yeah. Oh yes, for sure. And then the bullying and, you know, you just pile stuff on top of everything and it's, and he did, he found kids that were also kind of lost and, uh, for whatever reason, othered and they found comfort in each other. And then they kind of all led themselves <laughs> down an alternative path. So right. which, what age would you suggest parents start really taking their kids to someplace like your center where they can get help if they're suspecting a learning disability? As soon as you can. Okay. <laughs> it is never, ever too late. It isn't. We have students truly of all ages. We have lots of teenagers, some young adults. For parents, what's really hard is is kids don't get identified as having a learning disability until generally they're in about third grade, because the way that schools identify is they're looking to see that the child has, there's a big discrepancy between their intelligence Mm -hmm. and their performance, which means they have to fail for a couple of years before they get identified. Parents, especially moms, usually have this niggling feeling mm-hmm. very young mm-hmm. that there's something different there's mm-hmm. something harder and and they get told oh he's just a boy he'll grow out of it give it time the next teacher will be a better match there there are lots of mm-hmm. he just needs to try harder there are lots of things and so i would just encourage parents if you're kind of thinking it you're probably right mm-hmm. so go investigate it doesn't hurt to rule it out mm-hmm. The schools, you know, there there are some good services there and, and you want to take advantage of them, but they are not going to dig into the underlying issues the way we do there. If the child doesn't qualify based on the state standards, mm-hmm. they are going to tell you that there's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, you might feel a little bit intimidated. Oh, well, the school said there's nothing wrong. I guess he just needs to try harder. Yeah. A lot of times the kids get blamed, don't they? Yeah. You're, you're naughty, yeah. you're uh, hyper, you're not paying attention, you're not trying hard enough. Or the parent is kind of, it's insinuated or they do it to themselves to say, oh, I must not have been strict enough. I must not have, oh. you know, been organized enough. I must have been too busy, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's none of that. None of that. None of that helps at There's, all. <laughs> there are things getting in the way and they can be corrected. Unfortunately, there are not a tremendous number of people doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. There are people doing pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you just really want to look for, for someone who's talking about getting to the root of the issue. Mm-hmm. Is there information on a website where parents could go look? Where would you send them to kind of get acclimated to your philosophy? I have Two places, uh, our website, stowellcenter.com, okay. 
S-T-O-W-E-L-L, like stowellcenter.com. And when you go there, you will get a sense Mm -hmm. about what's going on for your child. I think you also can schedule a free consultation. So Mm -hmm. that will give you a chance to talk to someone about your child and, Mm -hmm. and get a little bit more information. Also, we have done a broadcast for two years called LD Expert Live, where we've had professionals working with learning and attention challenges from all over, tremendous information there. Mm -hmm. So just capital L-D-X, PERT. Okay, no E on the X. Yeah. Uh, Okay, LDExpert.com. And I'll put those links in the show notes. So, and I know you wrote a couple of books too. Would those be helpful for our parents? Yes. Uh, My first book, At Wit's End, A Parent's Guide to Ending the Struggle, Tears, and Turmoil of Learning Disabilities. Mm. If parents go to Parents at Wit's End, you can get a free copy. Mm. Uh, It's also available on Amazon. And it was written for parents because parents constantly say, I'm at my wit's end. I don't understand. I don't know what to do. And, and so it's really helping parents understand mm-hmm. why some bright children mm-hmm. and teens struggle in school. Oh, that sounds like an amazing resource. I will put all of those links in the show notes. And I encourage all of you listening to just look around and get the help your kids need. Check out these wonderful resources Jill is offering. And, and the help is out there for sure. And just to think beyond my kid is lazy. My kid is bad. My kid is naughty, you know, go past that. See what is causing that. Not just the behavior at face value, right? There's always something behind the behavior. Absolutely. You know, um, Dr. Mona Delahook wrote a book called beyond behaviors. Mm. That's what you want to think beyond behaviors. If I see a behavior, what is under it? Yeah. What is causing that child to perform that way, to behave that way, there's something. And that's what we need to get to if we're going to change it. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else you would like to say that I didn't ask about? Anything I missed? We said this really, but I just encourage parents to be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. You're doing the best you can. Mm -hmm. So have a little grace for yourself. And really with your kids, trust your gut, Mm -hmm. seek out what is really going on. And then together with your kids, go on this journey of Mm -hmm. discovering what they need to Mm -hmm. really thrive Mm -hmm. and and let them be a part of it. Because the more they understand about their own thinking style and their needs and why they're, you know, if they're in some kind of therapy, why they're doing that therapy, why you think it's really important, what you hope that is going to be easier for them. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want the child to, to be in the know about it. That is so great because I think a lot of kids just feel like a project, <laughs> like right. a, a problem, right? But right. they're not a problem. They're, they're a, a full human being and to get them engaged in the solution. I mean, they're probably the ones that will know the best anyway, what, what they need if, if they can learn to get the words and, um, understanding what they need with your help, you know, but to keep the the kid on board as the primary member of the team, not just like the victim or the, the exactly the project. Exactly. 
That's really good. Well, this has all been very good advice, very inspirational. And to just think one step past what we typically think, you know, just keep going back, back and back and see what else is behind our kids' behavior and their learning. Thank you so much, Jill, for being with us. Thank you, everyone, for listening and supporting Safe Home Podcast. Find us on social media. Make sure and look up Jill's information on, on her website. You're on social media too, right? Yes, yes, we are. I'll link all that. And let's get involved in making it easier for them to learn. Thank you very much. And everyone, stay, stay safe. safe.